Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Philippians chapter 4. This is Thanksgiving weekend and we are going to take a little break from Hosea and talk about being thankful. So Father, we invite your spirit to be our teacher today. We come before you realizing that It is often a topic about giving thanks that we perhaps don't really deliberately practice. We just think it's a good idea, but uh, it's not really been a part of our daily discipline. May you change that today with us as we realize the tools that are at our disposal and the person of Christ empowering us that we can give thanks, that our hearts can be full. Do that for each of us. And my prayer is more of you, less of me. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hudson Taylor was an English missionary. He lost his wife and child while serving in China. And two weeks after Maria, Hudson's wife, gave birth, the baby died. And Maria herself had little strength remaining. Hudson went to her and asked, Darling, do you know that you are dying? Dying? Do you think so? What makes you think that, she said. I can see it, darling. Your strength is giving away. Can it be? I feel no pain, only weariness. You are going home. Soon you will be with Jesus. There was silence for a moment. Then Maria whispered, I am so sorry. Hudson looked at her and gently said, you are not sorry to go be with Jesus. Oh, no, it's not that. But it does grieve me to leave you alone at such a time. Yet he will be with you and meet all your needs. A missionary who stood nearby said later, I never witnessed such a scene as dear Mrs. Taylor was breathing her last. Mr. Taylor knelt down and committed her to the Lord, thanking him for having given her to him and for the 12 and a half years of happiness they had together. And then a few days later, Hudson Taylor wrote this. I cannot describe to you my feelings I do not understand them myself. I feel like a person stunned with a blow or recovering from a faint, and as yet but partially conscious. My father has ordered it, so therefore I know it is, it must be, best. And I thank him for so ordering it. I feel utterly crushed. Oftentimes my heart is nigh to breaking, but with all I had almost said, I never know what peace and happiness were before. So much have I enjoyed in the very sorrow. I think Hudson Taylor is a great example of Philippians 4 that says this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. 
Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The idea here is not joy in our circumstances, but it says in the Lord, in the Lord. Joy is experienced by our attachment and relationship with a person. Rejoicing is not reserved for special times in a church as we sing songs, but it's to be a constant exercise in real life. Consider elsewhere, Paul said, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Hmm. You know, that sounds really good Sunday school words, but is it possible? Is it true to rejoice at all times when the heart is saddened from grief? Paul said, has sorrowful yet always rejoicing. This tells us this is not some happy circumstance, put a smile on my face kind of rejoicing. This is something much more deep and abiding. The mind informs the broken heart of the truth of Christ, and we choose to rejoice. Paul is not relying on some happy optimism here that has you know, no basis, but the reason for rejoicing is rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is why the Christian is to rejoice always. Because the person and work of Christ are not subject to our experience. But our experience and mindset is to be formed from Christ. We often think of Christ as just some, you know, nebulous concept for the super spiritual or something. But I want to draw your mind to some very specific things that give rise to being thankful about Christ. And we'll just look at the book of Philippians and just look at some highlights. We'll do this quickly. First, there's the cause of Christ that is our priority. In Philippians 1.5, Paul talks about being partners in the gospel. We just had Marcia up here. She doesn't seem forced to do what she's doing. She seems to joyfully go on a mission, knowing that she has a passion in her heart. All of us have a mission, a purpose. We don't have to go to Honduras to enjoy that purpose. And in that purpose, we know that we're serving God. Paul talked of being partners in the gospel. He said in verse 12, his hardships 
have contributed to the advancing of the gospel. And in verse 27 of chapter 1, he speaks of striving for the sake of the gospel. So it's a, it's a privilege that our mission transcends money or prestige or possessions, the things that usually consume our daily lives. And when one is attached to such a lofty, superior goal, then the talk of sacrifice is, is welcome. I'm glad to do that for this mission. Then we have the character of Christ as our pattern. In Philippians 2, Paul esteems the character of sacrificially giving up oneself in the interest of others. I mean, here in our culture, it's all about freedom. We can hear Mel Gibson crying in Braveheart, you know, freedom, right? We all want freedom. We don't want anybody encroaching upon our rights. I've got the right to do this, right to do that. That is a declaration of the flesh. But the Christian has his rights disciplined by the will of God. That was Christ. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in a, in a day in which you know, moral, a moral comp compass, moral guidelines seem as varied as the number of opinions that are out there. And all you got to do is talk with a normal college student who has very little or no religious training, and actually many that do as well. In the name of tolerance cannot bring a judgment or, or declare some morality. We have to be tolerant of everything. And in this day, Christ lays down not just a moral code, but a moral example, a model that cannot be matched. He sacrificed his freedom and very life for the sake of others. He did not hold to his rights or his power. He could have obliterated those who tortured him at the cross but he held back. He willingly gave himself up. And because of Christ in us, this is what I want you to get, because of his model and because of Christ in us, his character is a product of our dependent faith in him. It is not impossible, well, it's impossible in the flesh, but it's not impossible with Christ in us to exhibit these kinds of characteristics cause of Christ, the character of Christ. And then the comprehension of Christ, that's our passion. Philippians 3 says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. There's this sweetness of intimate knowledge of Christ that comes through hardship and suffering. And we know that that's indispensable. I'm willing to go through that because look at the payoff of my relationship with Christ. And then the care of Christ is our peace, 
And that's what we're going to talk about here in chapter 4. Because of the promises and power of Christ, we are struck by the pervasiveness of rejoicing always. It's possible. You know, rejoicing always is not because, you know what? You just have to tell yourself, have your clock, you know, your watch go off every five minutes. By the strength of your will, you're going to rejoice always. That's not what he's talking about here. I think of rejoicing more because of the faithfulness of Christ in us. Paul repeats this all-pervasive junction. Twice. He's not just saying it for the sake of, sounds great. But it implies that this is possible. Rejoicing always. Having the attitude and practice of rejoicing because of the person of Christ in us. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The Greek word that's used for reasonableness, one commentator said that it's the most untranslatable Greek word in the New Testament. (laughs) And the reason is because of the many different ways that translators look at this word. For instance, the KJV says moderation, Wycliffe, patience, Tyndall, softness. The Geneva Bible says the patient mind, the RSV, forbearance. Magnanimity is another word that's used. It's a big word with a big heart. And what it means is that you are understanding to accept somebody unconditionally, without prejudging. Your heart is soft and tender, even though you might have the right to condemn. The word has the meaning of a non-retaliatory spirit. Includes the ability to go beyond the letter of the law in how we treat others. We think, hey, you made your bed, you got to lie in it, right? What people say. The idea is that I may feel I have the right to judge because the facts are plain, but I'm going to be gentle. Gentle. It holds back what is obvious. It doesn't delight in seeing someone shamed. Handles situations by reserving judgment. Listen, this is not a word that's used in the context of parenting that you can't tell the truth to train somebody. This is about personal relationships we have. Instead of insisting on strict justice or personal rights, we opt for something that's only possible because the Lord is at hand. What does that mean? Well, there's the proximity of the Lord with us. In other words, he's close by, accessible, You know, we can pray to him. He's present with us. Proximity. But then there's also the idea of his return in the future. See, when our conviction maybe about something insists upon our way and judgment from happening and, you know, we declare somebody wrong for doing this or that, we're to choose rather to be gentle. And by being gentle, we're not saying, well, you know, you got to, 
be kind to when you pet kittens and little puppies. Be, be gentle. This is a gentle reaction when justice can be enacted. And it says, because the Lord is at hand. So what I'm doing is, even though I may have the right to exact justice, I realize the Lord is at hand. I will make it his business to do that. I'm not going to be the one to show vengeance. I will leave that in the hands of the Lord. And he's readily available to calm my heart because his justice will eventually be executed. Remember that when you want to exact some justice. Maybe you have rehearsed a speech you're going to give to that person who's hurt you. And you think, you know, if I see this person in the store, I am going to give them a piece of my mind. I remember a guy once that I knew who told me how he went in the parking lot and just took a key to a Mercedes Benz. He was openly telling me this. This was while he was trying to sell me something. Why? Because he was, he was so jealous of this person who had the Mercedes-Benz. <laughs> like he did something wrong in doing it. And even if it was the case, what well, gives you the right to damage somebody's property because of it? He saw in his mind he was going to give to that person what they deserved. And yet what he couldn't see was his own anger and bitterness and jealousy. Gentleness reserves all of that for the Lord to take care of it. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You know, depression is a very common emotional problem in America today, and one of the most difficult to deal with. And severe cases of depression that require hospitalization is only representative of a larger number who perhaps are not performing at optimal level because they have this heaviness that are upon them, on their mind and heart. But I want to distinguish clinical depression from what Paul uses here in anxiety. Anxiety. Um, the two can be related. In other words, often people who are depressed are anxious, but not everybody who's anxious is necessarily depressed. There's not a one-size-fits-all um, cause or remedy. So I'm not here to say, you know, quote a Bible verse and you're going to quit being depressed. That's not what I'm saying. However, if we can separate those two things, there is a choice we make when it comes to worry and anxiety. And when he says, do not be anxious about anything, then it at least opens the door that we are not victims to this, but that we can make a choice 
with our anxiety. And it gives us great hope that we don't have to be a victim to this. Anxiousness and worry are synonymous. And when we're anxious, our focus is on an outcome that we cannot control, and we feel threatened. And the extended anxiety can produce an offshoot of related issues like trouble sleeping, physical problems, substance abuse, low self-esteem, and others. Add to that living with the unknown that can cause great consternation. We don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. And if we did know all of what tomorrow would bring, we'd have no need for faith. Part of our faith means being confident about Christ and his presence in my life, even though I am living in the midst of uncertainties. I mean, how can I still experience contentment when I didn't get the job? How can I still have joy when the doctor says the test is positive? How can I rejoice that these people didn't accept me? I want to suggest to you that having joy and rejoicing is not about knowing how everything's going to turn out and arranging things, just putting ourselves in situations that we have certainty it's going to turn out to our advantage. Again, I don't think that's possible. What we do need is that we have God's power to address our concerns. Jesus said this in numerous ways. He knows the grains of sand on the sea. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows every sparrow that falls to the ground. Don't you think he's going to care enough about me? You go, okay, Kevin, that's right. But do you know what happened to me? Do you realize what I've been through? And you're telling me there's still a God? Yeah. as horrendous as it is, as hard as as it's been, I believe there still is a God. And what we need is God's power to address our concerns. And so Paul gives prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, requests, all have to be made known to God. Now, I don't think Paul's intent here was that we could break down the meaning of each of these words and practice all these different types of prayers, although I think that is a good thing to do, I don't think that's the intent here. Instead of the intent is, in all of the prayers, all of these different kind of prayers, all of it, go to the Lord, give him your concerns, whether it's thanksgiving or asking him for stuff, continually go before the Lord. Communicate to God all of your cares and concerns. When you feel like cutting yourself, go to the Lord. When you feel like entering into that abusive situation, you go to the Lord. When you feel like lashing out in anger, you go to the Lord. You communicate to him all of your worries and concerns. 
And when I learn to include him and look to him and trust him, my heart is being sifted through the circumstance where I realize God is the only one I can trust. He indeed is trustworthy. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There is a special peace that is of God. This is not the peace that simply speaks of the absence of war. This is an inner sense of God's presence and his promises being good in the most difficult of situations. We're not talking about grin and bear it. We're not talking about some pithy Christian saying, some cliche. We're talking about looking at the reality of death, the pain of abuse, the hurt from rejection, and it still sees God at work, that he's near, that his love is extended to us in the midst of that. We live in a world that is filled with sin, and stuff like this will happen to us while we're on the earth. It's a part of the curse. But God is still here. Remember, when Paul wrote these words, he was not sitting in his lounge chair watching his 70-inch TV of the latest home show. He was in a prison. And he said, rejoice in everything. We looked at his three missionary journeys in Acts. And we saw the hound of anxiety snapping at his heels. And even when the hound was not in sight, its howl had sounded loud in his ears. Fears, uncertainty about the future, persecution, physical disease, mental anguish, all seemed around the corner. Paul's words come from the arena of hard knocks. And his instruction is refined by suffering. Janet and I have experienced it through 40 years of marriage. Situations where the only thing we know how to do is to get on our knees and pray. And panic can enter in the situation. And yet, we get on our knees. We ask God, we don't have the answer, Lord. We don't know even what the next hour is going to bring, but we're saying we trust you and we're asking for your help. If God is there, if he loves us, don't you think he'd want to comfort us? Just like any loving parent, if a child comes with a genuine need and they're crying, they're not going to tell them, go away, bothered by you. No. It's hard for some to fathom how a person can experience contentment when 
life throws the worst at us. Janet and I stood in a funeral line a couple decades ago to greet a widower who had lost his wife and two children. He had several children, but his wife and two of them were killed in an auto wreck while he was driving. And it was amazing. Hundreds of people were at this funeral. And I remember his greeting about how good God was. And he knew that there was a hope of heaven. Where does that come from? Is that hope real? Is that just he was stronger than everybody else? I don't think so. I think he chose to place his thoughts on the sovereignty of God and the hope of heaven with God taking three of his family members. Listen, human rationality, line up 20 PhDs and they cannot apply today's philosophies to comfort such a person. Something supernatural is needed. You know, there's only one New Testament occurrence of the expression, peace of God. It's right here in Philippians. More than us being given some nugget of understanding, this is actually of God giving us a piece of himself. It's his peace being implanted in our hearts. God gives, we receive something of himself. I think of Daniel. People in the government did not like him, made up some cockamamie law, but you can't pray. And this is how Daniel responds. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. You know the story. He gets thrown into a hole with lions. <laughs> and somehow God was able to give him peace. My brother had a friend whose head was in the jaw of a grizzly bear and survived. His lasting memory was the terrible putrid breath of the bear. That's the thing you remember. And when I think of that, I think of, have you ever been so entrenched in trouble that certain smells, sights, words bring you back to the event and you feel like a panic attack is coming? There's great anxiety. We have to have something to fend off the thoughts and the anxiety. And that's why the phrase here, guarding your hearts, is used. It's a soldier term. It's like God brings a squad of soldiers to stand guard and protect us from worry. 
And such a peace is not a dream of the human mind because the human mind cannot even comprehend this kind of peace, this wholeness, this quiet confidence. This kind of peace protects the two organs of worry, the mind and the heart, that produce feelings and thoughts. But I'm here to tell you this protection is real. It's available in the person of Jesus Christ who we access through deliberate prayer. It's not gonna be just some magic wand that God's gonna take away all the pain, but it's, Lord, I need your help. Constantly, always. We cultivate the capacity to trust through our life of prayer. As our capacity to trust expands, our tolerance for uncertainty and ambiguity grows. And I think our anxiety diminishes. I don't have to know what tomorrow's gonna bring. I can be okay with not knowing what is gonna happen tomorrow because I know God and I know his love and sovereignty and that's the surest knowledge and hope a human being can have. God's peace is like an inward sentinel protecting us, keeping watch, and then we're not invaded by alien forces that would disrupt and ravage our minds and hearts, crushing us with anxiety. The way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. A friend of mine who I've known for over 40 years and was in our wedding, his only child died of a gun accident. And he recently relayed two things that helped he and his wife deal with the grief. One was the number of people. He said it's been probably 30 different people that have reached out that he's known through the years that have come out of the woodwork to share their experience of losing a child and the chance to minister to one another in the process. The second thing was what he termed seeing the goodness of God. As others have upheld he and his wife emotionally and spiritually. He referred to David Kessler's book, Finding Meaning, the sixth stage of grief. And about the importance of purpose. And you realize life is never gonna be the same. It's gonna be different now. There's gonna be a scar you're gonna live with. But I have reason to get up in the morning. I don't have it all figured out. God gives you purpose, motivation, peace. I know that there are some here today that carry a deep burden. I'm not here to try to intellectualize it. I'm not here to give you some cheap advice about moving on. Another thing my friend said is, you can't believe the number of stupid things that people say when you're in grief. You know, you just have to get over it. 
just have to move on. Maybe the worst words ever to speak to a person in grief. You know why? Because when you have this ready knowledge of a hurt and this pain, it's like a man living with an amputation. You don't ask the amputee to forget about losing your leg. I have a lost leg. How do I forget about that? That's pain. I look at this every moment of my life. It's there. But the scars do not define us. Though they will stay with us. We can choose not to be anxious about today and live in light of Christ and his reality, his love, his sovereignty by telling him daily our concerns. And like a child leaning up against the breast of his mother, he takes comfort of the warm embrace And we can take comfort in the warm embrace of God and his Holy Spirit who provides that true comfort and fills our hearts. Don't be anxious about anything. Kevin, you don't know what happened. Don't be anxious about anything. Do you know how much of a fool I made of myself in that project? Don't be anxious about anything, but my spouse rejected me. Don't be anxious about anything. Do you realize the hurt that was caused? Don't be anxious about anything. You cannot insert anything in that verse that trumps it. Pray to him about everything. Sometimes, We're like Jacob who has to wrestle with the angels. This is not a recipe. I don't mean it to sound like that. Sometimes it is a real struggle. You're praying through tears. You're praying through anguish. But again, I bank on the fact that God knows. God knows. How do you live with that? You truly have to give it to the Lord. I remember when my father was alive, he was on a trip and stopped at a rest stop. And a man, when my dad was going to the bathroom at a rest stop, standing at the urinal, a man took a gun and fired it right next to him. It was a starter pistol. Of course, you don't know that when you're sitting there, right? My dad's like in his 60s. Now, you can imagine how you'd respond to something like that. You you want to take vengeance. You want to um, make sure that somebody gets what's coming to them, right? Uh, How does that make you think about guns? You'd recall that situation all the time. How How do you get some perspective in that? And I'm sure if I went to each of you, you could tell a story of something very painful that's happened, very hurtful. And I am not 
in any way trying to diminish the pain or the effects of that, but only to say that you have a God who cares, who can hear it, who knows that we live in a sin-sick world. But the Lord is at hand. He's going to relieve us one day. I wish there would be justice upon those people that hurt me. The Lord is at hand. Okay? You may feel like this other person didn't get what was coming to them. The Lord is at hand. Do we really think the Lord is going to let that slide, whatever that thing is? I don't think so. Not his perfect justice. The Lord is at hand. Can the Lord relieve me of this? Well, ultimately, yes, because the Lord is at hand. But even now, he can provide peace to where I don't have to give in to the panic attack or the anxiousness. Now listen, none of us are ever going to live life not ever feeling anxious again. And I don't want you to leave this place feeling guilty every time you feel anxious, all right? But you know what that is? That's the indicator. All right, I got to go to the Lord, okay? It's just like when I see pride or arrogance in my own life. It's like, oh, I know I can't be prideful or arrogant, but when I see it, all right, I've got to immediately go to the Lord. And anxiousness is the same way. So we're we're not expecting perfection. But I just want to encourage you. You've got somebody there. The Lord is at hand. Let's pray.